Hey everyone, this is the Money Moves Podcast brought to you by Gen Z for Financial Literacy and Hack Plus. I'm Matthew Shadid. I'm Stephen Lin. And today's guest is Douglas Boneparth. He's a wealth manager based in New York City and he started his own company, Bonefide Wealth. My name is Douglas Bonaparte. I am the president and founder of a wealth management firm called Bonafide Wealth based out of New York City. Uh, wow, what have I done in my career so far? So mostly I run a wealth management firm for older millennials now. I'm 38, so I guess that classifies me as a geriatric millennial. But I was one of the first to really pursue my generation from a wealth management standpoint back when none of us had any money and just a ton of student loan debt. Uh, but I thought that was probably the greatest opportunity in the world as far as building a wealth management firm was concerned. And I was very fortunate uh, to get a very, very early look at that in uh, working in my father's practice from a very young age. And while it didn't work out with him and I uh, just a few years out of school, uh, I was able to go to New York City just as the sky was falling in October of 2008 and learn a lot about not just the industry, but about the money habits of my generation and what is needed to help them achieve success. Amazing. Sounds great. And then just speaking more specifically about your company, what exactly does Bonafide Wealth do? What, service do you, what services do you offer? And how does your company kind of explore the field of personal finance? How do you work with your clients to make sure they're meeting their financial goals? Sure. We provide two primary functions as a business. The first is financial planning. So uh, I'm a certified financial planner and our, and what I think is the greatest value that you can receive from a financial professional is financial planning and going through the financial planning process. So this has us examine everything from cash management to insurance and risk protection planning, investments, retirement, tax, and uh, estate planning. These make up uh, one's financial life. And then the second way that we work with our clients is through investment advisory, investing assets on their behalf, uh, hopefully in a long-term disciplined way. Um, there's three ways to invest. And let's just go through those real quick. And then th these are my thoughts. The first one is on your own, right? You can learn any amount of information and figure out a way to become a consistent and disciplined investor. Um, whether you choose to do that passively through index funds and asset allocation models that you can stick with, or you've developed a system uh, to be an active investor, whether that's through trading yeah. or, or a model that you've developed, um, you can do this on your own and you don't need to pay anyone, right? I think fees have gotten to the point of non-existent in most major brokerage accounts. Um, if you don't want to do it on your own, but need a little help and you're willing to spend a little bit of money, you know, you can hire a robo-advisor. Those are the betterments and wealth fronts of the world. There's no shortage of platforms you can use now to get low cost passive investing for, for a nominal, you know, additional cost to have that automatically rebalanced and allocated for you. Uh, and then there's, you know, investment advisors like myself that you'll pay more money for. Um, and hopefully you're incorporating that into financial planning. But here, you know, you can pay upwards of 1%, if not more per year, uh, to have someone take care of it all for you. 
And one of the things that I have noticed in working with individuals from their 20s into their now early 40s is just how much life gets in the way of you know various ways of investing your money. I have a lot of respect for my clients and friends and individuals that can balance their entire lives, their work, their children, their families, all of that, and create great habits in investing and discipline around uh, investing. They don't miss a month of averaging in on their strategies. You know, they, they don't get emotional when things get wild in the market and they stick to it. That's hard. And it's only made harder when you're choosing things that require actual active management of that money too. So I really got to tip my hat to them and they save money by not having to pay a robo or an advisor. But that I think is the exception more than it is the rule. You know, mm-hmm. I work with very smart, yeah. very motivated. I think we're still young, you know, um, <laughs> professionals. And the time just goes away, right? When you have a couple of yeah. kids and a demanding job and you want to spend your free time on the weekend, you're happy to outsource this, whether it be that robo or to an advisor. And when things are getting more complex, um, you have more needs than just how is my money, you know, going to be invested? I, I would argue that's, relatively the easy part even though your life makes it difficult but like doing it like what it actually is it's it's not that complex relative to the financial planning piece which is predicated around uh your goals and what's going on in your life and the decisions you need to make day to day month to month year to year Mm -hmm. so um that's one of the biggest lessons i have it doesn't matter how simplified you know, investment has become, investing has become primarily due to technology or fee compression. Um, It really has to do with how it fits into your life and what your time is worth. That right there is the greatest lesson that I've taken away, at least as a professional, when it comes to how you go about investing. But it's, it's never been easier uh, to get money into the market. Yeah, 100% agree. I think even to your point about just struggle of life and then maybe the the turmoil that life might bring um, through its joys. Finances always remain a huge part of that. I I heard someone call, especially the groups that you work with being millennials, I heard them call uh, being called the sandwich generation in terms of finances because they had to take care of their older grandparents while also having to take care of uh, parents, excuse me, uh, while also having to take care of their children that, that they were having, which is a unique problem, maybe to other generations, especially because of maybe life expectancy, uh, people deciding to have kids when they decide to have kids um, and all that. I think that maybe uniquely made millennials a, a harder, harder generation or maybe the hardest generation to deal with in terms of finances. While I appreciate your compliments that we have to deal with more adversity, you're going to find yourself editing this part of it because you got Gen X as the sandwich generation, not the millennials. Although I'm sure at the older end of the spectrum, um, you know, millennials are now facing that same issue Mm -hmm. that Gen X, the sandwich generation has faced. And this does come up and you know, I'm just playing with you there. You can keep this section um, because I'm sure it is happening to, you know, I'm 38 um, the oldest millennial can be, I think is like 41, 42 right now. Um, and this is definitely something that has shown up, uh, in my practice in terms of, you know, my peers 
now being uh, faced with needing to support their parents or provide some level of support, whether it's sending them financial support in terms of money or uh, medical and physical support in terms of yeah. uh, their bodies deteriorating and not being able to do, you know, just daily living activities. Yeah. And that's a good point because it, in your previous comment, you talked about setting financial goals and how some of your friends who you really look up to, people who can put away X amount of money every single month, invest even when the market's doing poorly, not let their emotions take control. On the topic of setting financial goals, a lot of the people we talk to kind of struggle with that because they're like, how big are these goals? How big should I make these goals? And on top of that, how do I stick to these goals? So when your clients come to you with these problems, what do you say to them about financial goals and sticking with the goals that they set? Right. That's a really good question. Look, you know, you don't always want to be moving the goalposts, right? That doesn't really make for good planning. At the same time, like life is fickle. You know, what you had originally sought out to do, you know, in your mid 20s might be completely different from a goal priority standpoint by your late 20s or early 30s. So for me, it's really having a system in place for your goals. Um, it's it's not enough just to identify them because I know what and you know what the standard goals are not to work forever buy a home someday, get married, maybe it's start a business. These are pretty typical things. You get excited when it says, I, I want to go to space <laughs> or you know, I want to do something rather exotic with my, with my money and my time, whatever that might be. So having a system for goals is helpful here because life is fickle and things will change. But what does that mean? It's really three steps. The first one is what we had just mentioned. Um, to identify them. Yes, we do want to know what they are. And we talked about some just a second ago. The second is then to quantify those goals. So here's, here's the next logical step of how much does it cost and when do you want to achieve that goal? So putting a time and money parameter around it helps one quantify it. Now it's becoming more real. And the third one is to prioritize. And this now addresses what happens when, you know, life changes or hits you in the face, which it will do no matter what you, you know, what's the what man plans, God laughs. So there's life for you. Um, prioritization is helpful because number one, uh, it helps you understand which of your goals and you usually have more than one is most important to you right now. Um, I'll give you an example. When. Uh, you know, my wife and I, uh, she went to law school. I went to business school. We, you know, part of our story is having amassed a, a lot of student loan debt to do those two activities. Um, and our priority uh, before we had kids and before we were married was to pay off our student loan debt as soon as possible. Um, refinancing at a low rate wasn't an option at that time. It would later become an option. But then we found out, you know, after getting married, we were having our first child. So, all of a sudden, the priority, uh, whether it was priority B or C, um, of buying a home became goal A, right? Came priority A. And by having that system in place, by knowing which of our goals were most important to us at that moment, as well as being, and what does that do? I know I'm stumbling here, but what does that do? Well, it helps you allocate the first and last dollar of available savings that you have. Right. So if you know how much is coming in the door each month and how much is going out, 
um, you can figure out what you can consistently afford to save, invest, or the corollary of that is pay down debt. Well, um, you'll have a better time accounting for the first and last dollar of available free cash by having prioritized your goals. Um, so I like that system a lot. And I think, again, it's just not good enough to know what the goals are, but to have quantified them and prioritize them. So when life does throw that curveball, like you're now having a kid and you now need to make buying a home the first priority, it's a lot more seamless, right? You're making proactive decisions around your finances. You're not being reactive. And it's when you're being reactive that you end up making mistakes. Yeah, I, I definitely understand that. And I think it might be plain to be able to just go out and say, you need to prioritize and you need to make money goals. I, I saw an article um, in the Times a while ago that was like 20-year-olds are, are tired of, of of people telling them that they need to save and, and all that um, what, because of the external problems. But what does prioritiz prioritization actually look like? like what, what is that? What steps can someone take to actually go out there and, and make a list of, of what they need to do? Yeah, I mean, it's just writing them down, to be honest with you. Um, don't limit yourself to just the, you know, the classic ones of financial independence or having a cash reserve. I mean, I do think, mm -hmm. that, you know, the latter there is, is foundational and, and something that should be done before even before you start investing. I feel that having as strong of a foundation as possible is, is a great way to stay invested or uh, continue the pursuit of a goal that you have. So always having the opportunity to write things down and be able to look at it is just time tested. That that will be something anyone wants to do. Um, but yeah, I'm trying to put myself in the shoes of a 20 something year old who doesn't want to be told, you know, what their goals are, wants to have a little bit more freedom. That That's all well and good. But you know, I always thought that, you know, life's like, uh, you know, you get to hold some darts in your hand and you have an opportunity to throw them. Look, you're standing across from a wall. Yeah, you'll you'll hit the wall. You know, is that what you wanted to hit or would you prefer a dartboard on the thing so you can figure out how many points you're going to score? So I, I think it's important. And I think maybe what I would, I don't know, uh, how I would interpret you know, the design, cause I, you know, I was in my twenties once too. <laughs> How would I yeah. interpret that is there just needs to be more direction. And, and now let me walk that back. It's not direction. I think that there needs to be more encouragement for young people to pursue their goals and their dreams without being affected by what their parents or social media, society, friends, or, or otherwise are telling them to do. Um, I'm more and more convinced of this than ever before that having seen the education system of borrowing to go, you know, get your college degree and it not always resulting in the reward that you were told it would have. And trust me when I tell you that from the perspective of watching my wife go to law school, um, that there's probably no <clears throat> better time to be taking that risk early on and to know that you should have some permission here uh, to go after big audacious goals um, because this is what you're going to be doing with your life, right? And I wrote about this in my newsletter last week. Um, you know, it's graduation season here. Like who who really says they want to be an investment banker or consult? Like did you grow up and your friend was like, I want to be a policeman. I want to be a firefighter. 
And then mm -hmm. one kid was like, I want to be an equity research analyst. No, nobody, <laughs> no one said that. No one said yeah. that. In, instead, it's, it's clout chasing or this notion that there's financial, like I need to work for Goldman Sachs, no offense to Goldman Sachs, um, or I need to work <laughs> for this, you know, top four. Um, or, you know, my parents told me throughout my whole life that get a good job, be, you know, keep my head down, be financially stable. Oh, wow. Look at all these pathways. A business degree can, can lead me down. There's a lot of stability there. And you really just don't have an idea as to what any of those mean to you. Like, right. meanwhile, meanwhile, you like sports or you like, <laughs> you know, design. Yeah. Or you're good at creating content. And if you can just figure out how to take your passion and desire for something you love and pair it to the skills and education you receive and give it a go, what's the worst that happens? You gain a ton of experience pursuing something you love and then have to go get a job. I know everyone's situation is different and not everyone can just afford to go YOLO the first few years of their you know post-graduation life here. But if not then, then when? I can assure you, you know, after putting in seven to 10 years uh, at a firm, whatever firm that is, uh, it is exponentially more difficult uh, to then change. You might have malice to feed at that point. So, um, yeah, I, I think goals isn't so much, you know, for the younger early 20 something year old. Hey, do I really need to think about retirement right now and building a cash reserve or, you know, how to fund my 401k? Not necessarily cash reserve. I feel strongly about but the other ones, no, I think you need to figure your life out and take chance and risk that hopefully leads you down a road of, of being happy. Mm -hmm. And I think it's a really good point because with a lot of high school students and college students graduating now, a lot of them are, are like unsure about where to navigate in the future. And I think you bring up a good piece of advice that when you're young, when you're a fresh new graduate or going into college, going into high school, these are times for you to explore and take more of those risks that later on in life, you may not be able to. Um, I was going to more ask, like, how do you think people can navigate that through, through finance, especially the post-grad years where you're talking about a lot of people make come to you with student debt. And at, at times it feels like an impossible task to manage, especially with those large figures coming out of, um, you know, higher post-grad institutions. Yeah. Um, like, what does that look like when they come to you and, and what do you do? What's your first step? Yeah, we got to get a game plan around that. You know, um, really first is getting organized with that debt. When you go through several years or semesters, um, almost each time you borrow a new tranche of loans is taken out. And most people are unfortunately not by any fault of their own, you know, lacking financial education. So it's pretty daunting to see eight tranches of federal loans with weird descriptors geez, you might not even know how a loan works. Let's be very real. Why would you? No one taught it to you. Like maturity dates, outstanding balance, compounding of interest, deferment options, terms. I mean, to you and I, this might be cool. We talk this language all day, but to most people, it, it's, it, it might as well be a foreign language. So um, getting organized around what you have is, is absolutely paramount to tackling the problem. And then after you've organized yourself, uh, you can start to develop strategies around how it is you're going to go about tackling that debt. And this really runs the gamut, guys. Like 
Um, not everyone will have sufficient cash flow to make the standard payment on their debt or be in such financial shape. You just graduated. Did you build credit? What income have you demonstrated? You know, like for most people, they've never worked before. There's no credit that's been established. So shy of your parents helping you out here, there's no way to refinance that. And you can you can see I'm dating myself here because what are you refinancing to in this day and age? You know, at the time right. of this podcast, right, you know, 30-year mortgage is over 7%. We spoke about this just three years ago, even two years ago. Yeah, you go refinance your federal loans into something, you know, with a two or three in front of it, you know, and that was a huge opportunity. But you couldn't even take advantage of that if you're fresh out of college. Uh, or school or grad school. So now that you've organized yourself, you can start to inform yourself a little bit more about, again, how you're going to go about paying this back. What's the strategy? Do you need income-based repayment and to have a crutch under your arm because, you know, you're just ramping up your earning power. You can't afford, you know, that $600 a month, you know, uh, loan payment and rent and food and a beer on the weekends with your buddies while you're, you know, just starting out your career. Mm -hmm. And you need to have enough knowledge to know that it's a temporary solution. And you actually might be working backwards if your payments aren't paying or covering the interest. We call that, you know, negative amor or reverse amortization. And <laughs> anyone who heard me just say that's like, what? So, I mean, again, it, it goes to, um, this really lack of understanding, you can't bust out terms like negative or reverse amortization uh, to just anyone. And you have to understand that th that decision to go on an income-based repayment plan or an income-contingent plan, which is what a lot of people do, um, you need to know that that's what the consequences could be of choosing that option. So, you know, I'll stop there because there, there's a lot of different ways to go about doing this. If you don't need those options, do you, you choose a standard plan, a graduated plan? And obviously working together with an individual, um, we're able to make much quicker work of that than if they were, you know, led to needing to learn it all on their own, which they can. And then understanding how that information uh, works in the greater context of their, of their financial life. You know, what's their, what are they spending their money on? What's that income doing for them? What's the opportunity to grow your income? Can you do more outside of your nine to five? Is it a nine to five? So on and so forth. You know, it's just kind of scratching the surface. I think this is a good point. And you talked a lot about how people who come to you and people you've worked with in the past, they're really confused about these terms, like the various long terms you mentioned and how they're not sure where to even begin because they didn't have that proper financial education growing up. So what do you think the importance of learning personal finance when you're younger is getting financial literate during your teen and 20 years? Like what, what do you think the importance behind that is? And what do you have to say yeah. to people who maybe don't recognize the importance of learning money when they're young? Yeah, not look, not everyone can be born on third base, right? I I was not um it sounds nice, I guess. Um but if you want to get to as close of if you want to get as close to that as possible, you know, without actually being born into a wealthy family, um I think learning personal finance uh is one of those things. I have this uh expression where it sounds something like this. There there are very few things that you can learn with relative ease in this world that have the ability to dramatically change your life. And personal finance is one of those things. 
you know, money is a universal language that not a lot of people can speak very well. Think about that for a second. You are required to speak this language every day that you breathe. And there's a really good shot. You're bad at it. <laughs> Imagine going yeah. through this world with the inability to communicate spoken word anywhere. You don't, you know, you, you have to speak this thing and you can't really do it very well. That might lead to a fairly miserable existence being unable. You're going to start pointing yeah. at the things you want to eat and drink. You're literally <laughs> doing sign language at that point. It's, it's not efficient. It's, it's very frustrating and it can lead to a lot of problems. Yeah, no, I didn't point to the Drano, which I'm now drinking. I can't read that. You know, I, I just wanted Gatorade and, and now I'm poisoned. Now I poisoned myself. That's a silly, <laughs> silly anecdote. Um, but it's kind of like that, right? And if you can learn to speak this language uh, and get ahead of it, um, you can dramatically improve your life in all kinds of profound ways. And not just that part that wisdom onto others, most, most notable, your children, uh, so that they can approach the world uh, on, on more equal footing or on a greater level of footing than uh, you did. So it is absolutely compounding uh, to learn this stuff early. Um, there, I would tell you anyone, if you met anyone who has learned to speak the language of money, you know, at an early age, uh, I'm willing to bet they're so much further along uh, in their life's journey mm -hmm. uh, than almost uh, anyone else. Yeah, I mean, the fact that from what you mentioned that learning money, you can pass it along to your children. I think that's crucial because many people don't have that. Many people don't have parents that grew up extremely financially literate. And I'd say most don't. Along with that, it's not taught in schools. We can talk about how it's a universal language and it's not taught in, in a majority of schools in the United States. Um, we're getting there though. Um, I'm pretty sure a, a few states just passed uh, laws last week in their state yeah, legislature. More, more and more, and I, while I remain optimistic, more so on the abundance of financial information that exists outside of the school setting, for better or worse, I mean, you guys are absolute living proof of this. This episode will exist for free to be consumed and downloaded into the brains of your peers mm -hmm. and younger and older in hopes that they will be encouraged and empowered to learn whatever it is they need to learn to improve their lives. I mean, don't understate the absolute massive power that the 30 minutes or so we're spending together here today can have and then multiply it by those like us that create financial content for consumption, for mass consumption, right? We've democratized mm -hmm. news and information so much. Um, however, it was still would be really nice to see this uh, in classrooms. I mean, I, I received all the way up to a graduate level education in, in business and uh, from a really good school. And uh, certainly no knock on them. I enjoyed my time there and learned a lot. But from basically preschool through <laughs> grad school, there wasn't a course on personal finance along no the one. entire way. It's, it's crazy. And you have to go out in the world and deal with this and speak this language. It, I mean, mm -hmm. when you say it like that, it's absolutely fucking nuts. 
Yeah. Exactly. And like with, when Matthew and I talk to other organizations, other teachers, other parents, we always tell them, you know, calculus, physics, chemistry, English, all great courses, but physics great. is not going to help you zero taxes. Physics is not going to help you learn how to invest, how to get a 401k, how to use a Roth IRA. You really need to learn those core skills, whether it be in the classroom or outside the classroom before you become an adult and hopefully as you begin to advance in your career. That, that, and that's only one half of it, right? And we'll use half exactly. as a proxy for whatever real percent it is. It could be more when I tell you the other half is human behavior and, and control and discipline and the mindset yeah. that you have. Because while, yes, putting money in your 401k or doing a backdoor Roth IRA strategy or you know being a disciplined investor who indexes and keeps their costs low are all great things absolutely we're talking about investment planning here a little bit of retirement planning and tax planning too um but it's really how you got the money in there in the first place and your ability to keep doing that it's about delayed gratification versus immediate gratification and so I don't sound like a boomer here and say oh you know you're all immediately gratifying yourselves Gen Z and X. That's not what I'm saying. I'm, I'm taking a balanced approach, right? How do you balance? That's the hard part because that's a human part. That's the behavioral part. How do you balance this notion of a subjectively comfortable lifestyle? What's comfort to you isn't comfort to me against consistent savings and consistent investing that's necessary to get to some goals that you've hopefully put out there for yourself. And that's all behavioral. Like just because you can put money in a 401k or a Roth doesn't mean you're going to be good at getting that money in there consistently. And it doesn't necessarily mean you're going to make great decisions and exhibit good financial behavior on a regular basis. I think it's an excellent point because kids nowadays, even adults, they're always told, you know, take X percent of your paycheck and put it towards this. Yeah. Take X percent and put it in like a money market mutual fund 100%. and then take another percent and invest it. You know, you really need to build those behaviors and those habits that will not only turn your actions into better results. So just asking you on a personal level, how do you start building those habits, those behaviors? How do you not go berserk when the market does does bad? Right. And and how do you build that discipline? And really, it's about exactly. creating, creating that foundation for yourself. The first one's the master cash flow. This is to really gain control of what comes in and out of it. You should know exactly how much you make. And I get it. If you're in sales or work on a commission basis, you know, it's tied to your performance and actual uh, production. So, uh, you know, there, there's ways you can do high, medium, low, right? What a bad year looks like, what a average year looks like, what a really good year looks like and plan each of those out from a cash flow standpoint. And if you're W2, it's fairly straightforward. You know what your salary is, but really it's about that expense side. You know, um, how many people complain that they have no money left at the end of the month, but don't ever check their statement <laughs> or bother to categorize their expenses and see where it actually goes, this can be done. There are even tools today to help people do that. Um, so mastering cash flow is really being intimate with that money flow. Um, and that, again, will help you establish what you can consistently save. When I say save, I mean cash or invest. When I say invest, I mean assets. Uh, so we start with that, right? You got, you got to begin by first just taking control of your own behaviors and seeing where your money goes. Um, and it's very interesting that you say, uh, you know, 
you were saying, you know, very boomery to be like, you know, you hear your mom or your dad say like, oh, you got to get money in your 401k. Are you putting money away? You got to get the money in there. And it's like, yo, I'm just trying to, number one, make sure I can pay my student loans every month. And number two, you know, have maybe three to six months of my living expenses in cash. So I don't need to sweat you know, uh, something fun, like a big night out or a spontaneous decision to do something fun. Or I don't know, I had a bad month or I needed to take a break or I lost my job, something like that. Um, I'm really a firm believer in creating as strong of a foundation for yourself as possible before you start putting risk on your money. The purpose and goal of investing is to stay invested so you can participate in the compounding of your wealth, of money, uh, by putting risk on it, right? That's the premium you're looking to get. I don't know about you, but uh, I think you're going to have a much better job staying invested when you have a foundation, right? Think about it. Would, would you ever build a home on shaky ground or quicksands? You can have a beautiful mansion sitting on top, you know, of, of, you know, of quicksand or, or loose sand and a gust of wind will come along and knock that beautiful house down. You look to the, you know, the shanty next door that's, uh, you know, standing in poured concrete that's reinforced. It takes a cat two storm, no problem, right? So which home would you rather have? And it's a silly metaphor for just the importance of, establishing that foundation. So mastering cash flow and building that cash reserve. Oh man, those two things, boring as hell. Very, very boring financial concepts. I'm sorry, guys. Like the sooner you get done with the really boring, non-sexy stuff, because investing is the sexy part, um, the more you mm -hmm. can play around in there and the more you get to do that. Um, and it, it, that's just the way it is. That's just the way it works. And it also flies. I get it. It flies in the face of that conventional wisdom that the sooner you can get your capital into the market or into something appreciating, uh, the sooner you'll be able to compound your returns. Well, again, I submit to you, what good is that if you can't stay invested? So exactly. uh, there is no compounding if you're like, oh, no, an emergency came up. I'm going to have to sell you know, half of my investment portfolio to deal with that as opposed to, nope, got the cash right here. Don't need to touch my investment portfolio. And you know what's going to happen the second you touch that portfolio? Draw down city, right? You, you know, you, and, and you don't have the ability, excuse me, the other way around. You, you, you sold the bottom is what I meant to say. Um, you've already experienced that drawdown. You're forced to sell assets at their low price and you just created a compound fracture. I think it's a really good point because some of the people we talk to just encourage people, okay, invest, learn how to invest, learn the different types of things you can invest in. But you bring up a really good point that it's not just about actually going to your broker and saying, hey, I want to buy this stock, this index. It's actually about having that fallback, that initial cash reserve that you spend time building up in case something bad does happen. Yeah, it's worth, it's worth in my opinion, it's a, hot, it's a hotter take than not. In my opinion, it's worth having that stability versus that additional year of compounding. And I know that that first year is the one that means the most, uh, assuming, you know, assuming there's no bad timing taking place right there, right? Exactly. 
And then one last final question, like what actionable advice do you have for young people that where they can start today if they're not sure about the, navigating the whole sphere of investing, personal finance? What can a young person listening to this podcast do today? Do you have any recommendations for specific websites, books, resources that they can use to learn more? Absolutely. The first one is is a little crude, but it's actually give a damn. Like nothing, nothing will no resource will be good enough if you don't care. You know, my uh my friend Morgan Housel says you you know, I'll paraphrase and butcher it. Uh you might not be interested in, you know, diet, exercise, and your money, but they're sure interested in you, right? So you gotta care. And uh, you got to want that for yourself. Otherwise, good luck. There's not going to be real any fixing it. But once you get there, um, there's no shortage of resources. Obviously, we'll pump your podcast here. This is great. I'm sure we're going to learn invaluable lessons. I'll pump a book I wrote in 2017 with my wife called The Millennial Money Fix. So uh, I know this is a, a Gen Z for FinLit podcast, but these are timeless lessons that uh, really serve as a wonderful primer for everything we talked about here. A lot of the things that I've shared with you today are found in that book. Uh, and it will show you how to get from selecting a school, if you haven't done that already and you're still on your way, um, to ultimately getting married. So, you know, So that's everything from uh, what to do after graduation, how to handle your loans, deal with your job, income, investment, uh, again, primers and all of that. Um, and beyond that, man, I love Investopedia. I've been I've been working with them for years now and enjoying uh, recognition from them uh, as an influential advisor. If you haven't been to that site to look up definitions and read content, you're, you're certainly missing out. Um, my friend uh, Michael Batnick and uh, Ben Carlson run the Animal Spirits podcast. It's a great, great, great podcast for staying up to speed on current headlines and trends when it comes to investments as well as financial behavior. Uh, my friend and, uh, and lastly, my friend uh, Nick Majuli. Um, he has dollars of dollars and data. His blog is is absolutely great at looking at the um, the data side of or data side, depending on how you want to say it, the data side of uh, of investing in personal finance and why uh, we can rely on that instead of our emotions to make great decisions with our money. Again, no shortage of content. I'm sure I've, I've snubbed a bunch of friends here with their stuff, but. Those are ones that just come off the top of my mind. Yeah, I definitely think those are all great resources. Um, I mean, blogs, books, whatever it may be that really gets you engaged. Um, I mean, even personally for me, I know that podcasts are, are where I go to for most of, like, most of my news. Not even just my podcast, but tons of podcasts is where I just enjoy it. It's so convenient. So I think starting there is great. I think those are some great resources that will all be linked in the podcast description and you'll be able to access all of them just under this podcast. Um, is there anything else you'd like to share? Maybe plug any of your own stuff, social medias? Yeah, absolutely. If you're into uh, financial comedy, memes and shit posting online, make sure you check out my Twitter account. Uh, it's pretty funny, I think. A lot of other people think that too. Well, check it out. It'll be, it'll be linked. Yeah, and and uh, more importantly, as far as like serious thoughts are concerned, uh, my Substack is is a great place to get a little bit more personal or, or look at some uh, financial concepts uh, from the perspective of uh, of a millennial. 
Um, there's always something good coming out just about every week or at least every other week. And uh, that's called This is the Top. So a little homage to uh, people feeling like we're constantly, you know, are, are we at the top of what? The market, your lives, what could it be? So uh, those are the two things I would uh, direct you to. Thanks for listening to this episode of Money Moves with Gen Z for Financial Literacy. We hope you learned something today. If you'd like to work with us, visit our website, genzforfinlit.org slash intern. Again, that's genzforfinlit.org slash intern. You can also follow us on Instagram at genzforfinlit. We also have a monthly newsletter where we go into depth on everything related to finance and business. You can sign up for it on our website as well. Until next time, it's been Matt and Steven.